and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Today you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack, and thank you so much for tuning in for what is now episode 69. And today we do have another Q&A episode lined up for you, but before we get into that, we just wanted to remind you that if you do enjoy these podcast episodes, please feel free to tell your family and friends about them take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians. And if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always check out our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com, which can also be found in the show notes below. So now that that's all wrapped up, Jack, let's get into this episode. So what's the first question of the day? Cool. So this first question is by Lawrence and he asks, do you think younger physique athletes should wait to get on stage and develop their muscle or should they have a go earlier than perhaps ideal so they can see if they like the sport? Damn, what an awesome question to start off the episode. So what are your thoughts on this one? So yeah, this is a good question and I think a lot of it's going to come down to the individual, uh, but part of it is also going to be the psychological and physiological uh, associations with competing at such a young age. So Lawrence didn't define what age is a younger physique athlete, but i would probably say that anything younger than 17, I just don't think it's really necessary to compete at that age. And also, as I said, it, you can get into, run into some troubles potentially because you are still growing. Uh, even if you're, especially if you're 15 or 16, you are still going through puberty and the amount of dedication and just the mindset approach it requires to do a competition like tracking nutrition, tracking training. Uh, you could argue that it's just not something that a 15, 16, 17 year old needs to do at that point. And of course there are going to be the ex exceptions like, uh, for like Tierra and I, we will probably have the same mindset towards training nutrition as we do now. Um, or at least the dedication required. What's changed for us is just the knowledge that we have. So, but in saying that, if I look back on myself then, I definitely was not developed enough to do a competition. So I would say that you really have to get the fundamentals down first in, the, in ensuring that you're training correctly. Uh, you're not necessarily tracking, but you need to be eating the correct foods. For example, being an energy surplus, um, having a decent amount of protein, covering your bases with the nutritional aspect like the food pyramid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what would you say, Tiara? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I think anything you know someone competing probably like at 17 or below the age of 17 it really could you know have a lot of negative consequences down the line it just in terms of yeah their development man your bone mineral density you don't want to be dieting that hard and putting your body through such stressful extremes when it's trying to develop and also i'm a strong advocate that before you compete you probably need at least two solid years of you know really good quality training and nutrition under your belt before you actually compete so i know lawrence he's certainly a special circumstance you know because lawrence like you and i he started this at a very young age you know he started i think working out in his in his home gym right and mm. he competed for the first time at 17 but you know lawrence you're certainly the exception i wouldn't say you're the rule just because you were a very special circumstance but I'd say like the youngest competitors I've usually seen are around that 18 year old mark. And even then it's still pretty young. Yeah, it is still young. And we both first competed at 20 and I look back on those photos and I just see a skinny kid. So. <laughs> but 
yeah, I guess that's sort of our answer. And I think a lot of people would have the same answer. And it really comes down to like the, the health consequences associated, not saying that it's going to be drastic, but it more comes down to necessity in terms of do you really want to compete or do you need to compete? And like, there's no harm in just taking, if you love it so much, just train for an extra couple years. Yeah, absolutely. Boy, I can't imagine if I would have competed at like age 16, like we would have still been in high school. Can mm. you imagine like doing a bodybuilding show while you were at high school? Yeah. Boys, indeed. it would be <laughs> a whole different story. <laughs> Jesus. But, you know, to answer the second part of this question, so pretty much Lawrence has asked, do you think younger physique athletes should wait to get on stage and develop their muscle or should they have a go earlier, you know, and actually see if they like the sport? So I would say, you know, I would say if you are in that circumstance where you've got, you know, uh, one to two years of solid training and nutrition under your belt, then I would have a go earlier than later, you know? What, what, what would you say, Jack? Like, I'd say I would have a go if you were somewhere, you know, between maybe 18 to 22 years old. Yeah, I completely agree with that. 18 to 22 is perfectly fine. But again, yeah, if you're below that 17-year-old mark, then I would just say like wait a little bit longer, sort of broaden your knowledge. There are some, of course, genetic freaks who are probably weigh like 90 kilos lean at like 16 or 17, <laughs> but yeah, they're few and far between. Yeah, damn, I wish I was one of those. Really? <laughs> Can you imagine me, 90 <laughs> kilograms and lean <laughs> and six foot? Uh, but yeah, I think this is just a good question, you know, and Jack and I were talking about this the other day, especially after we recorded our first Road to 2021 podcast. And, you know, really thinking about what makes a good bodybuilder, right? And at the end of the day, it's not just your physique that makes a good bodybuilder, right? It's actually the experience of actually doing multiple competitions. It's the experience of getting on stage, mastering your posing, you know, developing those skills, really just going through the process time and time again to, you know, really see what works for you because it's the greatest learning experience on the planet. And the more you go through that process, you know, the better bodybuilder you're going to be because the better physique you're going to be able to present on stage. You're going to know what to expect when you step on stage. It's you're always going to improve and you're always going to learn something from every single comp prep you do and every single time that you step on stage. But you know, if you are a younger competitor, first thing is I wouldn't go into your first season with any expectations, right? Even though, even if you are super self-confident, right? And even if you look fantastic, just remember that this is your very first show. It's going to be the greatest learning experience, right? That you've probably had so far in your life. And uh, just don't go into it with expectations because unless you know, you're know you going into an age category, like it's 21 and under or something, you never know who you're going to be up against. Even if you're going into first timers or novice, right? Or even in a height class or a weight class, it's completely out of your control who shows up. And you know, the matter of the fact is, is that it's likely that people are gonna show up who might have 10, 20, maybe even 30 years on top of you in terms of training. So I'd say don't go into it with expectations to win. Just go into your very first comp prep just like like a sponge. You're learning a whole bunch, you know, and you're just there to really experience it. And 
That way, you know, you're really going to be able to decide, is this actually for me? You know, is this something that I might want to do again? And I'd say it's probably better to have that experience sooner than later. Yeah, I think it can go both ways as well. Like there are people who aren't really enjoying the prep or they start the prep and by the end of it, they're like, okay, this definitely isn't for me. But then they do a show day and then they're like, okay, when am I going to hop on stage next? And then there are people in the opposite. They start off really enthusiastic. They go through the prep well. Maybe the the show isn't, um, they come out of the show even placing well and just not, it's not really for them. They they tried it once and that, that's it for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, you know, pretty much try to, again, just have those two years of solid training and nutrition under you at least at a minimum before you compete. But I'd say if you've been super disciplined and super adherent to following a very specific plan for anywhere between maybe two to five years and you're interested in bodybuilding, I would say it would be appropriate to compete within that time frame to decide, okay, do I actually, you know, want to go through comp preps in the future? I wouldn't recommend probably, you know, doing this for 10 years straight. And I'm talking about being as disciplined and as adherent as a bodybuilder for 10 years straight, because unfortunately guys, because of the sacrifices that you have to make as a bodybuilder, you might miss out on life opportunities, right? And if you were, I don't know, this would be a crazy situation, but if you were in this situation between the years of 20 to 30 years old, right? And then you decided to compete at 30 years old and you just decided that you hated it, right? Man, you might've just, you didn't waste your 20s, but you might've missed out on some opportunities you could have had while you were in your 20s. So that's another thing to, uh, to just consider, you know, I'd say a little bit sooner rather than waiting to be later. And again, obviously your physique might be better, but at the same time, it's not just the physique that makes a great bodybuilder. It's the experience and it's the skills that you develop mm. by competing season after season. Yeah, I would, I think it's mainly the physique to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it, it is obviously the physique is the main component, but there's so many other components that make a great mm. bodybuilder. Yeah. I would say the bodybuilding experience is all the other components, but I don't know, like, yeah. I I would argue that honestly, even if you had the best coach in the world and you had 10 solid years of training and nutrition under your belt, and then you decided to do your very first comp prep, I'm sorry, this is just my opinion, but I would argue that you probably would actually do better if you maybe would have competed after four or five years of solid training and nutrition, went through a comp prep, you know, found out the dietary strategies that work best for you, found out, you know, your mental capabilities and how resilient you are, how hard you can really push yourself. You know, you developed those skills of posing and stepping on stage, you developed that confidence. Then you had another four or five years off, then you competed again. Personally, I think you would be better the second time around because it's not just your physique, man. Yeah, I completely agree. Like they are going to be better the second time round or the third time round. That's just human nature to learn from your experiences. And I would be concerned if someone comes in worse the second or third time than the first. Yeah, I absolutely. That's always the goal. You always want to be improving show after show. You never want to be regressing. <laughs> Yeah. Otherwise, that wasn't much of an improvement season. That was like, oh, God, that's so sad. A regression season, boys. (laughs) But would you say, could you apply that to, you know, your your first experience with competing? Would you say that, you know, 
like you're going to be better the second time round that you compete compared to if you wouldn't have competed back in 2018 and then you compete for the very first time in 2021 uh yes to an extent i would say no i think to be honest like with alan was an amazing coach and the only thing like if if everything goes the same as my last prep but i bring a better physique like Mm -hmm. then it's still going to be a great prep like everything was pretty good last time. It was good, but the, uh, personally, I'm just saying I think that you're going to be better because you competed that first time. Because in what way? Because you know that you need to get leaner. You know, you know that you can push yourself harder. You know that you need to start your prep. You and Alan both. But that's know all the physique part. Exactly, it's the physique part. But you wouldn't have known that if you didn't compete the first time. You know, you yeah. know that you need to start further than twenty weeks out if you start at a certain body weight, right? Mm. But at the same time, you also have that anecdotal evidence of the dietary protocols you respond really well to. So you'll respond really well to those high days, right? And maybe your fats can be a little bit lower, and all these different things that we've learned. And man, like if you wouldn't have competed that very first time you probably wouldn't have focused as heavily on your back development over these last three years too. That's true. Mm. Just saying, man. <laughs> Just your friend here. But uh, yeah, okay, let's move on to another topic. Hopefully that um that kind of answered the question. I know we went off on a bit of a tangent. So this next question is thoughts on the OMAD hype. OMAD, okay, when we got this question, I, I did say, Jack, what the heck is an OMAD hype? Like, what does OMAD stand for? So OMAD is one meal a day, and it's very similar to other sort of fasting protocols like um, the 16-8, so fasting for 16 hours, eating in an eight-hour eight, eight hour window, and even things like the 5-2 diet. So it's just another way of restricting your feeding. So one meal a day is what it sounds like, eating one meal a day and fasting for the remainder of that period. And again, it will depend on what your goals are. So for example, someone who is looking to optimize their physique or improve their performance, no matter what sport you're doing, then the one meal a day is gonna be pretty horrible for that uh, because you're basically depriving your body of nutrients other than one window. And we know that you need nutrients before and after exercise, potentially even during. And if you're only eating one meal, then you're not gonna be maximizing like glycogen replenishment, um, you're going to restrict the total amount of nutrients you're going to be getting in because like, are you going to be able to fit in six veg, two pieces of fruit, all your whole grains, at least 30 grams of fiber all in one meal? Um, it's going to be tricky. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, it's, it would certainly be tough. And yet the main thing that points out to me certainly as any sort of athlete is just, you know, you want those regular protein boluses throughout the day, anywhere between three to six boluses of protein evenly distributed. So if you're just eating a whack load of protein at one meal, you know, and gosh, the digestive issues, right? Of trying to fit in, could you fit in all of your macros in one meal? Boy, but even if you didn't have all the macros, even if you just had protein, man, imagine the average person fitting in, well, average, I don't know, anywhere between maybe 140 to 250 grams of protein a day, right? Like a day, which you're supposed to be consuming it in a whole day, but you're just consuming that amount of protein in one meal. Yeah, I think this is more catered for general population or people who want to try and be healthier or lose weight. And I mean... 
from losing weight, sure, it kind of does make sense. Like it's unlikely that you're going to be fit, able to fit in what you usually eat in a whole day into one meal as long. But then again, brings up other things of, again, the nutrients and um, sticking to it. So, I mean, if you want to be healthy, just eat normally, reduce your calories if you need to lose weight, ensure that you're fitting in all the food groups and I think that'll be more sustainable than this. Yeah, definitely. Sustainability. Like I just, I see so many issues with this in terms of it's not sustainable because what happens if you have your one meal per day, right? And then, you know, your family or your friends invite you out for a meal or, you know, to come over, you know, for dinner or something like that. And you're like, oh no, sorry, I, I've already eaten today, even though it was eight hours ago kind of thing. So yeah, you, you probably couldn't sustain this long term if you still wanted all those wonderful social aspects of life when it comes to food. And also, I just think, yeah, getting into that mentality of I can only eat at one time of the day and I've got to fit all of this food in, right? Like, I just think that it brings up, you know, the possibility of turning into some sort of binge eating episode, which I certainly just don't think is healthy at all. And it's certainly not a route that you want to go down. So you can certainly have a fasting window, you know, like if you only wanted to eat within a six or eight hour window, go for it. But that doesn't mean you have to eat everything at one sitting, you know, you can still space that out a little bit. Like it's not going to make a difference. It's only, if anything, it's only going to make a positive difference. So even though we're not advocates for this, uh, interestingly enough, this next question is about one meal a day. If you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, boys. Okay, so when we got this question, I uh, certainly thought about it hard with my little dietetics brain or big dietetics brain. (laughs) Uh, But Jack, what would you eat? What would be your one meal? So, yeah, approaching it from a nutritional perspective, uh, you'd want to include all the five food groups to cover your bases. And yeah, fortunately, you could at least eat this more than once a day. You just have to eat the same thing multiple times a day. Well, then you better make it good and tasty. <laughs> so I would make sure to include a diversity of grains and to get a variety of fibers. I would ensure to include uh, probably two or three protein sources as well. One of those being fish to get the essential fatty acids and uh, an abundance of fruits and vegetables. So at least, at least probably two, two or three different types of fruit, um, different colors, and uh, probably maybe definitely, well, I just said maybe definitely, but um, two or three different types of vegetables of each color. So for example, green, you would have like avocado, uh, green beans, and broccoli. Okay, so <laughs> what what does this meal look like? Well, that <laughs> is the I, meal. All I can see is color. It's it's too it's too broad. Like I'd have a grain. I'd have a fish. <laughs> it's not. It's, this meal doesn't have a name yet because it's it's. Well, I've just invented you, it. <laughs> you gotta name it. What's what's a Jack's meal? <laughs> it's Jack's dietetic meal of the ages. Okay, so what does this meal include, man? Like this is too broad. I want specifics. <laughs> what are you eating for the rest of your life? So it's the base is going to be some rice and some quinoa some oats polenta okay how would you all cook mashed those? up ground oh. into a paste and then you put that on the base of a cooking tin okay is there <laughs> any flavor no <laughs> no i want it plain <laughs> and then uh the next layer is going to be pureed fruits and vegetables <laughs> Jack, I'm sorry, but you're not going to have a very pleasant, like, palate for the rest of your life. <laughs> and then the next layer is going to be uh, 
the meat, all the different meats. Jesus, you're mashing the meats on top of the fruit. <laughs> pureed. And then the next layer is going to be all these different nuts and seeds. Those won't be pureed though, because then you'll have a nice crunch factor. Oh, boys. And then the layer on top is going to be like different cheeses and stuff. so this is like a really weird truffle oh my gosh how how are you cooking this in the oven not in the air fryer probably (laughs) actually and then on the side i'll have some olive oil and yeah some condiments as well boy this is maybe some protein powder as well okay (laughs) jack what the heck man don't like i understand you're deep into your improvement season but you gotta still have some sort of flavor factor there you don't think that'll taste good no (laughs) i can confidently say that won't taste good (laughs) okay but at least you won't be nutrient devoid of anything oh my gosh i'll regret that and actually in comp prep it'll still benefit me because like i won't really feel like eating it (laughs) okay so if anyone wants to hit jack up for a meal plan (laughs) you know where to find him (laughs) what about you i think Uh, okay so (laughs) i guess i maybe thought about this a little bit more than you (laughs) mine probably would have a bit more flavor but i think that my meal it would probably represent a normal meal i have right now so i don't just have like one (laughs) at least it has taste dude it's not like pureed meat on fruit (laughs) so like i usually split my meals what about pineapple on pizza that's that's meat and yeah, food. it's amazing, dude. Why don't you make like a multi-grain pizza? Oh, it's too late everything. now. <laughs> I can't go back. What's done is done. Oh, you enjoy your truffle, okay? <laughs> pizza's uh, pizza's out of the question. But yeah, so my thing, right? Like, I usually split up my meals into different components. So, for example, I'll usually have like a big salad with some fruit on the side, you know, and maybe a piece of meat on the side, and then maybe like a bowl of oatmeal or a thing of pasta or something on the side so i think i'm allowed to make that exception for this but first off i think i would have a massive salad basically with just every single salad vegetable and then i would also have you know a bunch of nuts and seeds in there, like pumpkin seeds walnuts pistachios i'd probably have a big oily salmon filet in there a bunch of feta cheese i would have you know like little bits of pumpkin i'd have olive oil i'd have balsamic some smoky paprika just have this massive salad maybe even put like a boiled egg in there (laughs) that's going too far oh this is an amazing (laughs) salad and then on the side for my main carbohydrate source my favorite source of carbohydrates are certainly oats so uh, i'd have a big bowl of oats with cocoa and chia seeds and cinnamon Top that with some high-protein yogurt and some macro Mike peanut butter. I think we'll have to and ask then, the um, question asker. I think you might have just... Like, did, did I break the rules? <laughs> I think you did. And j- did Jack go too far? <laughs> and then I'd have some fruit on the side too. So I'd probably have an orange and like some fresh raspberries. But I think that I could eat that for the rest of my life. Like every meal and just be so satisfied and so happy. That would be good. Yeah, so that'd be my meal. And um, I guess I would be living with Jack for the rest of my life while he, <laughs> while he enjoys his meal. <laughs> okay, so yeah. Uh, guys, If um, that, that would be our OMAD diets. Yep. Okay, so this next question, it asks, tips and advice for coaching yourself through an improvement season and a comp prep. Yeah, so there are two very important factors here that need to be considered before you try and coach yourself. And the first one, which is arguably the most important, is do you know what you're doing and do you have a plan 
in in front of you so there are two critical factors here and the first one is the improvement season and then the comp prep so if you don't know how to construct a training plan if you don't know how to progressively overload and improve your physique and then followed by the the correct implementation of a comp prep like the nutrition component uh, optimizing lean muscle mass and losing fat mass and then the posing aspect the whole journey itself of bodybuilding or whatever category you choose to pursue so yeah it's not it's not just simple as simple as saying okay i'm going to coach myself because you didn't that's why there are coaches because they tell you what to do and they they know how to do it safely and effectively and the other factor is the compliance um factor and that's the reason why a lot of people do get coaches is because they have a pretty good idea of what's going on especially people who have done it three or four times but they still get a coach to have that support system emotional support as well and keep them in line so when when times are tough and your partner may not fully understand what you're going through or even why you're doing it that's when a coach can relate to you tell you to like stop being a pussy and just nail down because <laughs> um, sometimes coaches need to do that and sometimes they'll say okay yeah you've been pushing really tough time for a um a diet break etc mm-hmm. yeah i think that's that's a those are such good points and certainly you know one of the main reasons people hire a coach is because they need someone to hold them accountable they need someone to keep them in line to keep them adherent you know to help them keep progressing toward that goal because yeah that's a that's a great example of you know seasoned competitors people have competed multiple times you know they know generally what to do you know they know the fundamentals of training and dieting they know all of these certain things but they really really do need that person to guide them through that you know through the entire process and uh really just keep them on track but i'd say that if you were considering coaching yourself you know, you really need to step into the shoes of a coach. And that's probably the number one. You need to treat yourself as if you would treat a client and you need to hold yourself just as accountable, you know, and expect the exact same things from yourself that you would expect from a client. So what I'm talking about here is, you know, staying on track with your training. So having a very, very specific training plan and you are tracking your training, you're tracking every single session, every single set, every single rep, every single weight that you lift, and you are manipulating that week after week based off your progress, right? And I forgot this, the number one thing is you need to set a goal at the very beginning. So if you are in your improvement season, you know, you need to set very specific goals of, okay, what muscle groups do I want to bring up? How much weight do I want to gain? You know, how am I going to split this into, you know, how much weight does that equate to each week, each month? You know, how am I going to dedicate certain amounts of training volume in order to bring up those muscle groups? So those are other things too. So training is a huge component, but also staying on track with your nutrition. So you need to be very adherent and disciplined and committed to, you know, staying on track and tracking your macros. So tracking your macros every single day and, you know, um, coinciding that with daily morning body weights, your energy expenditure, how many steps are you doing per day? How much extra activity are you doing per day? You really need to track as much data as possible, you know, and then put it all together to get a really good picture of, okay, what's really going on here and what's going to be my next move to keep progressing toward my goals. So 
you need to step into the shoes of a coach and you need to treat yourself like you would a client, you know, and you need to take, you need to take progress photos. So you just have to hold yourself accountable to these things. That's, that's one of the main things. And that's what a lot of people would probably really, really struggle with. If there's not someone, you know, sending you messages once a week or something like, hey, can you send through some progress photos? Or, hey, you didn't update your training sheets. Or, hey, how's nutrition been this week? Unless you're checking in with yourself every single day on those things, then, ooh, it's it's gonna be pretty tough, you know, to try to sustain mm. this and try to, you know, really get uh, an, like a really good result out of this. Yeah, I've seen it go both ways as well. Like there are people who, potentially are too harsh on themselves. So they either do say too much volume with training and they slow down their progression through that route or they over diet themselves and they lose too much muscle in a comp rep. But more commonly you see people who either don't push themselves hard enough in training if they don't have a coach or they come in soft in their competition. And yeah, a lot of the second factor there is a lot of that's going to do with your starting point and where you start in a comp prep but a lot of it will also just be your coach is there to tell you how hard to push and sometimes you do have to knuckle down and push hard Mm -hmm. absolutely you know and it's not to say that you can't coach yourself because jack and i right now you know we both coach ourselves but you know, you have we are to, coaches though. It's we are coaches. <laughs> we are coaches. You know, this is our profession, but we do coach ourselves as well. But the main thing I'm trying to say is that we don't close off our doors. You know, we're not like closed minded. We're always staying open minded. And, you know, we're always talking to other coaches too. We're always trying to learn from our past mistakes, you know, develop new learning experiences, talk to other people about different protocols, different strategies. I have a consult tomorrow with a coach. Yeah, Jack's got a consult tomorrow with Alan. So like, gosh, you you still got to keep up the conversation. And (laughs) as you can imagine, Jack and I, like when we're not on air, you know, when we're just with each other which is all the time um you know we're always pretty much we're talking about bodybuilding so much but we're always you know relaying ideas and bouncing things off each other and having discussions about each other's physiques each other's you know training each other's nutrition so gosh you just got to have someone else too or multiple people that you really trust and you value their expert opinions to have conversations with too so that's super important as well so you can you can take the reins pretty much but you know you should allow someone else to what like hop onto the horse too every once in a while go for the sure ride thing. <laughs> yeah i don't know man <laughs> okay so moving on to the next question this one says subcutaneous fat even after weight loss it can be hard to shift any known strategies yeah so this is a really good question and i'm sure that you know there are a lot of people out there who have experienced after a dieting phase when you might have lost a significant amount of weight it just seems that you you know you have a little bit of extra skin or just extra fat really in certain pockets of your body that really just are hard to get rid of and We have spoken about this before, probably like maybe a year ago on the podcast, right? But it's it's an important point to make that when we're thinking about fat cells, right? Fat cells can undergo both hyperplasia, which is an increase in number of fat cells, and they can undergo hypertrophy, which is the increase in the size of the fat cells. But 
The thing about this is that if you are gaining a lot of body fat, right, and those fat cells are undergoing hyperplasia and you're developing more and more fat cells, once you try to actually diet down, those fat cells will get smaller, but they won't go away. They're actually there pretty much forever. Fat cells, they, I, I'm pretty sure the literature doesn't support that they, that you can get rid of them, you know, but yeah, unless you get them surgically removed. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, yeah, I, again, we have to think about the actual size of a cell. Like a cell is very, very tiny, but... So you'd have to get quite overweight for it to make a difference. Exactly. That's why you see these people, you know, like on The Biggest Loser and stuff like that. People who lose like 50 or 100 kilograms, right? And they're slim afterwards, but they've got a lot of loose skin. That's a lot of that is loose skin though. Yeah, but it's a fat cell hyperplasia. It's those excess cells, but it's different to muscle because... Muscle can only undergo hypertrophy. We're always talking about muscle hypertrophy, right? Have you heard that? Um, I think cats can have hyperplasia. I know we learned. Yeah, we learned that in in union exercise phys. They tried to do these studies to see if cats, you know, could develop new muscle cells. Apparently, they can, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> unfortunately, there's no there's no research to suggest that humans can. Unfortunately, so. Muscle cells can only undergo hypertrophy and increase in size. And muscle cells are actually the largest cells in the body. There are some muscle cells that you can see with the naked eye. They're so big. So, wow. yeah, it's pretty amazing. But anyway, that's the main reason, you know. So if you've gained a bunch of weight and then you've lost it, you know, that excess I think skin, there is a simpler reason there. What's, what's the other reason? The other reason is that you've just not gotten lean enough, so you're still yeah. holding some fat. Oh, Jack's the honest one. <laughs> <laughs> Jack's breaking it to you. <laughs> to, uh, yeah, I'm not, this is... This is not, not to you, not to you, but <laughs> to ya. <laughs> to ya. Yeah, so that is, I think that's the more obvious reason. I don't think, there's not that many people who, actually there probably is, because two thirds of Australia is, and America is overweight or obese, but... For an athletic population, um, if you're not satisfied with how lean you are, it's because you haven't gotten lean enough. Mm -hmm. It's not because you've been too fat before. So Yeah, so you just got to keep dieting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I guess those are two answers to that question. Well, you got to get some uh, some cold therapy and get those fat cells all burned off. Jack, you can't... You're <laughs> going to put us out of business, man. <laughs> but yeah, I guess that answers that question. Is there Are there any strategies to get rid of this, you know? I guess just keep dieting. Actually, there is this one thing. What is it? I think it's called an energy deficit. Oh, I think I've heard of that. Yeah, only a few select uh, people in the industry uh, know about it. Ooh, does does that include us? Yes. <laughs> wow, we are a part of the select few. And guys, you heard it here first. Energy deficit to uh, get a little Google bit leaner. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully that answers the question. You know, either someone is has been significantly overweight and they just have a lot of loose skin or you just got to keep dieting a little bit more, you know, and it should come off. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, because like to be serious now, there are... Everyone loses body fat in different areas more quick, quickly than others. Uh, like, for example, for me, when I do my comp prep, I'm pretty damn certain that my glutes will come in before my back and um, front, um, which is quite rare, but that's just how it is for mm -hmm. certain people. 
Yeah. And like, for example, and you'll also gain weight first in certain areas too. And it's very common, you know, for people, the very first place they usually put weight on is around their abdomen. But that's just, you know, from human survival and from evolution, because that's where all of our vital organs are. So if you're going to have body fat, you need something to protect it. You could even be losing visceral fat before subcutaneous fat, which is why you haven't seen much change in in, um, visual appearance of fat. And if to... If anything, it's healthier to lose your... You don't want to lose all your visceral fat because mm-hmm. it's there for a reason, but you it's unhealthy to have too much. Yeah, exactly. It's unhealthy to have too much fat, period, right? So yeah, yeah just maintain a healthy body weight. And yeah, okay. Hopefully that answers that question. <laughs> okay, so this next question says, resistant starch, is it really only two to three calories per gram? This is a good question. Uh, It sounds like all of these questions are good questions. I feel like that's always my answer to this. But yeah, so resistant starch, you know, the definition kind of speaks for itself. It is starch that is resistant to digestion. So when we usually consume foods, you know, carbohydrate containing foods, they have starch in them. And this starch, you know, it has alpha bonds in it. And alpha bonds, we have the enzyme amylase, right? That is able to break down those alpha bonds, you know, which of amylase in the mouth, but also in the small intestine. Yes, salivary amylase. (laughs) But you also have it in the small intestine too. Pancreatic amylase. Pancreatic amylase, which goes into the small intestine, my friend. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, amylase is able to break down these alpha bonds, which are able to break down those bonds in your starch-containing foods, and voila, you can absorb uh, glucose. But resistant starch, so resistant starch, it has beta bonds in it or beta bonds. And we actually don't have the enzymes that are able to break beta bonds. So but. it makes that starch resistant to absorption. And, you know, resistant starch, it's found in things like whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, you know, like unripe bananas. Also, if you cook and then cool things like potatoes, rice, and pasta, then that turns some of the starch, which is usually digestible, into resistant starch. And because it's resistant, you know, you're not able to absorb that. And usually per gram of carbohydrate that you would be ingesting, you would get four calories from that if it was it went through the whole digestive process of being absorbed through the small intestine. But resistant starch, it travels through the small intestine and it goes into the large intestine where it's actually fermented by a bunch of bacteria and it's usually turned into butyrate, which is a type of short chain fatty acid. And then short chain fatty acids, they can be absorbed into the bloodstream and they can be utilized as energy. So that's the reason why people say that, you know, resistant starch, it might equate to two to three calories per gram. But we have to remember that this is just kind of like an estimate and also just an average. We don't really know because, man, you just don't know once it's in the large intestine and, you know, like bacteria eating it, right? Like who really knows? Yeah, so I'll just treat it as you would dietary fiber in the sense that uh, in Australia, we keep it as part of our carbohydrate intake and I would leave it at that unless you're assuming you're not like eating like 20 grams one day, like 100 grams the next, then there's going to be um, quite a bit of variance in your energy intake. But if you're keeping it fairly consistent, then that's what matters the most. 
Yeah, I think it would just get too confusing if you're trying to break things down into, you know, digestible starch, resistant starch, fiber, right? And at the same time, you don't really know because let's say that you, you know, you cooked a bunch of rice, then cooled it down, then you ate it. How do you really know what percentage of that exactly is resistant starch and how much of that do you really know is going to be fermented and like how much short chain fatty acids is that going to result in? Like, you just don't know. It gets too complicated. It's a guessing game. It's like, yeah. (laughs) Estimate of an estimate. It is. That's for sure. So yeah, just keep things consistent and uh, no worries. But you know, resistant starch, obviously, because it is producing that butyrate and short chain fatty acids, it does have a number of positive health benefits. So certainly eating these types of foods is definitely a very great part of a healthy diet. Mm, For sure. Cool. So that wraps up all of our questions. And as per usual, we'll finish on uh, the same one as we always do, which is something that we learned this week. And Tiara has an excellent one for you guys today. <laughs> I think this one's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> I don't want anyone to make any jokes about female drivers. Okay. <laughs> but the other night, Jack and I were driving and uh, we're just driving down a road as you do. And this car stopped in front of me. And and then it like, it just started moving back toward me. And I'm like, whoa, what the heck is going on? And I like, I swerved right to the right and then got back and kept driving. And I was like to Jack, I was like, what the heck? That was a crazy driver. He was trying to reverse into me. And Jack's like, his reverse lights were on. And I'm like, reverse lights? What the heck are you talking about? <laughs> So long story short, I found out that cars apparently have reverse lights. I had, boy, I've been driving since 2013. So going on seven years and I've never, I I didn't, I was never taught that cars had reverse lights. I guess I've never been. It's not even that you just haven't been taught. It's like the observation that you don't see those special lights come on when they reverse. They're different to all the other lights. I rarely drive. I rarely drive at night. And usually when you're driving, you're moving forward. People Have you never seen your parents back out of a driveway or anything? I just look because if it's at night, you know, I just see the lights come on. So I'm like, oh, you know, lights come on on a car so you can see it. And that's critical thinking. That's what it is. Oh, boy. Okay. Anyway, I um, that's what I learned this week that cars have reverse lights. And So last week it was that we didn't know what goat is. <laughs> and then now it's you didn't know reverse lights were a thing. Yes, but hey, that's what that's what life is for, you know. I'm I'm learning new things every single week and maybe that'll save my life one day and maybe yours too if you still trust me to drive. <laughs> it's a big if. <laughs> okay, Jack, so what did you learn this week? So, yeah, I've been watching the Explained series on Netflix and I watched this episode about longevity, I think, or um, improving your lifespan and there's they have actually done quite a few experiments on different organisms and there was this one where they blunted something to do with the insulin response in in i think it was like a worm and we don't we unfortunately don't have the uh, gene expression that they silence but essentially it was for the release of insulin and because the insulin release was suppressed the uh the worm thought it was in a starvation diet even though it had more than enough food so it released the again i'm not going to use the right terminology here but it released the um correct expression to say okay i'm fasting here give me the all the good sort of age and longevity promoting um things (laughs) that (laughs) allow you to live longer (laughs) that is really interesting (laughs) 
Boys, they I didn't even think about insulin and worms. And are worms are they omnivores? No, but or- what I'm saying is that <laughs> these worms didn't have to fast to get the longevity benefits because a certain gene was silenced. Mm-hmm. Um, they because you know there's SNPs. Yeah, SNPs. Yeah, so I think it was an S, a SNP that was silenced and. Yeah, it was it was just quite interesting, and to to think that they could maybe replicate that in humans, and they were also talking about it's not necessarily, it's more about chronic disease than it is um, actually lengthening the age because we don't not many people die from old age. It's we die from chronic diseases, mm-hmm. not not age itself. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know these uh, these pre clinical trials done in worms can maybe one day be translated into humans yes gosh i've never i never really thought about that i guess i've never really thought of us being related to worms in any way we're not well we are very we probably are like way back but not <laughs> we we used not. we used to worm we used to can you do the worm no i can't oh damn <laughs> that would be cool <laughs> but um no that is that is really interesting maybe that's something i could say next week i learned to do the worm yes oh boy that would be so cool wait but we got to get it on film yeah it's not gonna happen though (laughs) okay guys so thank you so much for tuning in for our 69th episode if you did enjoy it please take a screenshot post it to your instagram stories tag myself tag jack tag the bodybuilding dietitians and we'll catch you next week see ya